Welcome back, dear listeners, to the Didomi podcast. Didomi is a Greek word meaning to give or has given. God gave, Didomi. So how are we, his people, his church, giving in return to our community and to our neighbors? My name is Wissam al-Salibi. I am the director of the Geneva Office of the World Evangelical Alliance. I'm based in Geneva. Today's episode is about Armenia. Faced with deadly attacks from Azerbaijan, how are the churches and evangelicals responding? How can Christians pursue healing and reconciliation? How can we support and advocate for peace and justice in Armenia, between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and in the broader region, which includes also Turkey? My co-host for this episode is Joel Veltkamp, Head of International Communication at Christian Solidarity International. Joel is joining us from Zurich. Joel, would you like to introduce our guest for this episode? Yes, uh, today we're very happy because of recent events. We're very happy to have with us uh, Craig Simonian. Craig is an Armenian-American pastor, theologian, and development specialist who has worked in cross-cultural contexts for over 30 years. He worked for many years in Tajikistan during and after that country's long civil war. And today he lives in Yerevan, the capital of Armenia, which was under serious attack last week by its neighbor, Azerbaijan. And in Yerevan, he serves as the director of the World Evangelical Alliance's Local Peace and Reconciliation Network. So welcome, Craig. Thank you so much for joining us at this uh, very difficult time for your country. Well, thank you both so much. It's really a pleasure and honor to be with you. So, Craig, we have a lot of questions for you um, after last week's uh, really terrifying events. But what is the situation like in Yerevan today, uh, six days into this fragile ceasefire? What is the public mood? Are there displaced people in Yerevan? Are there needs being met? Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, it's been a, a week. Actually, it was a week ago today that Azerbaijan crossed inside of Armenia's sovereign borders, uh, attacking Armenia in 14 different locations. And it was uh, hit on military bases and installations, as well as cities and towns and villages. And, and it was a shock. I mean, on one hand, everyone understood it was inevitable because well, simply said, Turkey and Azerbaijan have been saying they were going to do it for some time. And I think uh, no matter what anyone might feel about either of those two leaders, uh, it's always a smart idea to take them seriously because they've shown their hands and they've they've proven that they do what they say. And and so they they did it. And but still, we we all woke up just shocked uh, because as a small country of three million people. Uh, with a relatively poor economy, we just simply don't have the resources. It's not a fight that can be won. So there's a, a, just a tremendous helpless feeling that comes over the people here. And to be quite honest, the country is still in a bit of shell shock from the 2020 war, where over 5,000 Armenians, uh, young men were killed, our Armenian servicemen were killed in just the span of 44 days. And again, 5,000 in light of what's happening in Russia and Ukraine may not sound like a lot, but in, for example, in light of uh, the relative populations of the U.S. Uh, and Armenia, we lost more people here in 44 days than the U.S. lost in World Wars, Wars One and Two combined. So it was a massive hit, plus 10,000 wounded. And so for this to happen 
it, it really was a really emotional, powerful hit. Uh, not to mention the fact that when you're a small nation and you realize that you have no bargaining ship chips, uh, there's nothing to negotiate with. You realize that people probably won't come to your help. And it's just a very emotional, uh, traumatic thing. And, and it really hit people hard. So how is the mood today? Well, you know, we've had this six days of ceasefire uh, and we're very thankful for that. I would say that uh, no one here in Armenia believes that the ceasefire will hold. I mean, eventually they're going to take what they want uh, or at least try to. But uh, but we're very grateful for what we have right now. Now, I've been talking to a lot of people and uh, I've actually almost been surprised by how many people are saying that they're not able to sleep at night, uh, just the impact of the trauma. So it's very real uh, because just when you wake up in the morning and find out that you're being attacked like this and realize that, you know, we're only uh, through drones 20 minutes from where they're attacking here in Yerevan, uh, you just don't know what's going to happen. And so, yeah, I would say that people are really struggling here. Uh, so, so it's been a difficult thing. And, and of course, one of the things that's made this even more difficult in the last few days is we keep getting news about the torture of our servicemen. And that, that is really a hard thing for Armenians. We, we're not a, a warlike people. Uh, people come here and sometimes would say that you Armenians are a bit naive and, but it's we just aren't very aggressive, and so, for example, uh, according to the Human Rights Defender, uh, there's been the, all these social media stickers that were created for different uh, platforms like Telegram, depicting uh, Armenians being tortured and dismembered bodies of Armenian servicemen. And I mean, there's been over twenty thousand downloads of these uh, emojis in. Azerbaijan, which just makes Armenians realize that there's this hatred. It's not even this this contest for land, but this is sheer hatred. And of course, for people who experienced a genocide in 1915, uh, that really stirs a, a lot of emotion. And, and it's probably hard for people to realize or understand why a genocide from 106 years ago would have such an impact today. But quite frankly, it does. And it probably does because to this very day, Turkey doesn't acknowledge that it ever happened. And that's one of the, the, the crimes of denial is that when you deny, it makes the victims feel like it can happen again at any time. And so when things like this happen, it stirs all that. You know, they've hidden it before. They'll hide it again. And the world has forgotten it before. The world will forget it again. Uh, so again, the mood, it's, it's difficult. And even finding out that, uh, one of our female service women, uh, she was tortured, she was dismembered. It was, I won't even describe, but it, what they've been doing and they did it in the 2020 war, uh, is they take people's phones and they, they turn on Facebook live and then they, broadcast the, the kids, the young men being tortured so their families can see. So this has very much been the kind of war that's meant to to bring terror. And so when you ask, like, how are people doing and how's the mood, I think people are somehow trying to figure out how to go back to work and live their lives. And yet there is a, a deep fear. Uh, 
uh, yeah. So Craig, like we've been saying, a lot of people don't even know very much about this part of the world or about Armenia to begin with. So how would you explain this, this terrible conflict to outsiders? Why is Azerbaijan attacking Armenia right now? Well, in this current iteration of, of fighting, it, this is all happening within the sovereign borders of Armenia. And essentially for the past two years, Turkey and Azerbaijan have been insisting that Armenia give up a portion of our southern region so that they can build a corridor linking uh, Azerbaijan and Turkey. Uh, and they've demanded that this be a customs-free corridor, meaning that they can build a rail line and a highway where uh, Armenia has no control and can't stop and can't examine uh, contents or whatnot. And Armenia has just simply is not willing to do that. Uh, so not surprisingly. And so for the past number of months, uh, Aliyev of Azerbaijan has talked about forcibly taking this area uh, and again, because Armenia's essentially main protectorate, Russia, has its hands full in Ukraine, uh, uh, and because they see feel emboldened by the support of the EU, I think they just decided that this was the time to attack uh, and then take the southern region. Uh, the surprise for a lot of Armenians was that they hit hit us in 14 different areas in, in, in quite a large area. So they clearly wanted more. Uh, which is why, as I said earlier, Armenians were feeling quite overwhelmed by it because it seemed now that they're really going after the country. It is a small country. It would be, especially for a country like Turkey, it would be very easy to take uh, as NATO's fourth largest army. So, But that's that's a, the gist of it. I think uh, we have Nancy Pelosi, the third ranking, uh, who is the most highest ranking American official who is now in Armenia, uh, negotiating here and both of uh, the United States uh, have acknowledged that this was a Zeri aggression that this was an attack this was not a border dispute as some were originally saying but this was actually an attack of one country against the sovereign borders uh, of another uh, and so but so more and more nations now in the in the West have been understanding and, and saying that this is an attack and demanding it stop and so we have this ceasefire brokered by the U.S. and the, the EU. And again, how long it holds will, will, be, uh, will be yet to see. Thank you, Greg, for sharing all of this. I must admit that I, I haven't been aware of, of this, the, the, the tragedy that this conflict is causing as much. And, and I, I'm certainly not aware of, the, of this conflict in the words that you described them of the of the, the hurt and injury that this is causing. Um, thank you for sharing this. And I really pray that uh, the situation will get better and this, this, this uh, evil would stop in, in, in that, uh, in, in between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, what's the international community's response and how is it supposed to respond? I studied law, but I've always heard this as, is it right over might? or might overwrite. And I couldn't help in 2020 and now again to think that we still live in a world of might overwrite, uh, meaning uh, the strong, the will of the strong will be the will that is implemented and the will of the militarily strong as opposed to international law and the, the human rights framework that was developed after the Second World War. 
And I was wondering, uh, what what is your reflection on this? What what do you think that the international community should do? Uh, at some point, uh, Joel, also you wrote in your Christian Solidarity International Communique press release on Armenia. You wrote that the international community is not helpless on the matter. You appeal to the international community, to states, and to the United Nations Security Council to intervene. Uh, but but then the question is, is the international community willing? Uh, you know, are we not naive when we picture the international community as the good Samaritan? What What is your message, both of you, on this issue? Well, there is such tremendous fatigue in the world with the various conflicts, not the least of which are uh, Russia and Ukraine. And because of the current situation, in a way, we've emboldened the, the problem rather than try to pacify the problem. So, for example, because the European Union is so desperate to find any other source of gas other than Russia, the European president, uh, Ursula uh, von der Leyen, I believe her name is, she signed a gas deal in Baku to double its gas supply to Europe by 2027. Uh, and she made the comment that Azerbaijan is a reliable and crucial energy partner. And of course, that ignores all the human rights abuses and rampant corruption in Azerbaijan. Uh, But things like that embolden a country like Azerbaijan. I mean, even Human Rights Watch, they publicly came out immediately and said the EU shouldn't have signed this memo of understanding with Aliyev, uh, certainly not without insisting on political reforms and the release of uh, scores of political prisoners as well as Armenian soldiers that are still being held since the 2020 war. Human Rights Watch reported multiple cases of torture and abuse for all those uh, being held in Azerbaijan. And Amnesty International has said the same kinds of things, saying that unaccountable regimes are clearly and rarely reliable partners and really criticizing uh, the efforts of the EU to support Azerbaijan in that way. So, you know, even uh, entities that could bring some calm and peace here end up unintentionally inflaming things because of their own needs. And uh, certainly Armenians understand what's happening in the world. They understand that we're not at the center of things. We are very small. Most people don't even know where we are on a map. But... Uh, Yeah, it very much felt in the beginning with Russia being completely distracted and Europe focused on their own needs for Azeri oil and natural gas that that no one was likely going to strike. We knew that they were building their military up. Uh, There has been constant uh, influx of military uh, uh, into Azerbaijan. They're getting about 70% of their uh, weaponry now from Israel. The rest is coming from Turkey and some from Russia. And uh, so we knew this was going to happen anyway, but with them being emboldened, uh, thinking that Europe was just going to stand with them and knowing that Russia was completely distracted, they just decided to strike. Yeah. And if I can take on your question, we saw him, you know, do we live in a world of right over might or might over right? I think certainly in the past year alone, we've seen. We live in a world of might over right. The international law does have some role to play in how the world functions, but for the most part, you know, you have a world that's dominated by the United States as a hegemon, and then you have smaller rival powers that are trying to chip away at its its empire. 
Um, and it reminds me a lot of Daniel chapter seven, where you have these giant beasts just duking it out with each other and, and the innocent people get trampled underneath the feet of these beasts. Um, so no, I don't have a lot of optimism about how the international community will respond and live up to its own obligations under inter international law to prevent genocide, to prevent aggression. Um, but I do think also Christians have a responsibility to have a prophetic role and to say to the empires and to say to the kings, look, you can do something about this. You should do something about this. This is your responsibility. Um, and CSI is going to continue to take that message to the great powers as, as much as we can. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Greg. Also, the World Evangelical Alliance, because we believe that every human being is in the image of God. And we believe that the, the human rights law framework does does emphasize the inherent dignity and worth of every single human being. Uh, you know, as a result, we will also advocate for the primacy of right versus might because we're advocating for the primacy of the uh, image of God in every human being, uh, whether Azerbaijani or uh, Armenian or anywhere else. And therefore, as you said, our, our calling is to, to advocate for right uh, over might in this world so that we could, you know, advocating for a glimpse into the kingdom of God that is to come where there is no more hurt or crying or or injury like that's what's happening today so that's that's our calling and this is part of the reason why we're doing this podcast also and interviewing Craig and so grateful to have both of you on this podcast now i would like to to ask Craig more about your work as a director of the peace and reconciliation network in Yerevan I know that you've reached out and done reconciliation work between Armenians and Turks. I'd love to hear about that. But also, I'd love to have you ever reached out and tried to do any reconciliation work between Armenians and Azerbaijanis in the past or currently? And how do you practice peace and reconciliation with an enemy that's uh, you know, on the other side of a highly militarized frontier where there's land disputes? And uh, how do you minister to fellow believers in a country that's under attack? Yeah, thank you for the question. It, uh, uh, I would say that in terms of how we, in a sense, practice reconciliation, uh, particularly with an, an enemy that's on the other side, as you say, of a highly militarized frontier, it, well, I do think that it's a context where we can clearly teach and model Christ's love. I mean, we know, I mean, the whole of the New Testament was written in a context of, of drama and war and conquest. I mean, the Jews were living under Roman captivity. So everything was Jesus was speaking to, speaking of, he was speaking to a people who were living under this. Uh, so teaching and model Christ's love. I mean, truthfully, we, we simply do not wish that any should perish, as Second Peter 3.9 says. We wish that everyone would come to repentance and, and know Christ. Uh, so, of course, we pray for the protection of our own country, the uh, maintain, maintenance of our own sovereign borders, but we, we do it without praying for the destruction of those attacking us. I mean, when the 2020 war happened, a, a group of about 40 young people uh, we went away for a few days just to pray. And again, we're, of course, we're praying for our nation. We're praying that we would not be conquered. But 
we were weeping over the loss of Azari young men who don't know Christ. And so I think you can live in this context. I don't think it's even challenging to do it if you really understand the way that Jesus lived his life here on earth. And so we teach and model Christ's love. And of course, we teach and model forgiveness. Uh, just forgiveness is something we always do. It's not easy, but but it's uh, it's a, something that's required of us. It's and truthfully, forgiveness requires nothing from the person we're forgiving. It's it's rooted in a love that comes from God. Love comes from Him, and with our capacity to love, is a capacity that comes from His endless supply. And so, and that love, of course, was demonstrated in our own lives when Jesus died for us. Craig, and, can, sorry yeah. to interrupt. Can you forgive when? the person that you're supposed to be forgiving is still hurting you like it's happening now between azerbaijan i mean you used you mentioned that they the the war restarted six a few days ago last week a few weeks ago and it could restart anytime now and the hostility is still there how can you forgive in, the, in such a circumstance well i think that's where you have to draw a clear distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. Because while forgiveness essentially requires one, while it only takes one to forgive, it does take two to reconcile. Uh, So because reconciliation is a mutual exchange, it requires repentance from the offender. Because at its core, it's the act of restoring relationship between the offender and the person offended. But forgiveness only requires one. so I, I would say we have to keep the two things separate. You, you can forgive someone for what they've done to you. And of course, how do you forgive somebody for what they are currently doing to you? Let's just say on an emotional, psychological level, that would be very difficult. And we don't press that issue. Uh, but we know that uh, by not forgiving, uh, long after the the quote enemy has forgotten what they've actually done to you. We still continue to live in the pain. If we hold down to that unforgiveness, listen, I would forgive the person who hurt my child, but I wouldn't choose a relationship with them. Uh, I can forgive somebody. And if they don't care what they've done for me, in fact, if they actually mock me, uh, then I don't, I, I wouldn't choose uh, to have a relationship with them, nor does scripture require me to. I mean, we're told in Romans 12 to do all we can to live in peace with all people, and we should aspire to that. So as an example, can can somebody forgive their spouse of adultery? Yeah, I mean, it's both the command and expectation of scripture. Even if their spouse is having an affair, and they can they can forgive. I'm not suggesting it's easy, but they can forgive. Uh, and of course, as, as you, the, your listeners know, that forgiveness isn't a matter of forgetting. It, it's that process of handing that offense to a holy, righteous judge rather than playing the part of the judge yourself. And we know in Hebrews 10, it says that it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So they're not off the hook. Instead, you're just taking the weight of their sins against you and giving them to this holy, righteous judge who who will execute judgment for himself. So while you can forgive a spouse of adultery, the question then is, can do you have to reconcile with your spouse? And I would say, well, 
if he or she repents of their sins, if they completely end that relationship, commit to never doing it again, then the possibility of reconciliation is there. Uh, But can you reconcile with a spouse who continues to cheat on you? No, I don't believe you can. And sometimes the damage done is so severe that the relationship can't be salvaged. So I would just draw the distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. I think we can forgive our enemies, uh, but that doesn't mean we need to reconcile with them. While I do think we should aspire towards reconciliation uh, because it's a great ministry that God has given to us and he's again, has modeled it uh, in such a way that we ourselves have been reconciled to him through his mercy and grace and love. So Craig, as you know very well, of course, this is your ministry. As Christians, we're called to love our enemies, to do good to them, and to live at peace with all men. Uh, but for you and for other Armenian Christians, this call comes with an added challenge. Uh, you belong to a nation that has Christianity at the core of its national identity. Famously, it was the first nation to convert to Christianity. And it's a nation whose powerful neighbors have tried to wipe it out completely before and maybe trying to do so again. So do you feel a tension between Christ's call to universal love and your being part of a Christian nation in some sense that is fighting for its existence on the battlefield? It's uh, such a meaningful question and it's hard to imagine that I can answer it, it, it the way it really deserves. But without minimizing it in any way, I, I have to say that myself personally, I don't struggle with it in a sense because in my heart, I don't hate the Turks and I do not hate the Azeris. I mean, that, so I don't feel the conflict in the sense. I mean, I have Turkish friends. But they're friends because we've been reconciled, because they've asked for my forgiveness and I've forgiven them. Uh, but but forgiving a, a Turk or an Azeri, it's not the same as dismissing the actions of the Turkish or Azeri governments that have committed atrocities against Armenia and Armenians. Uh, again, I, we just keep them separate. Uh, you know, I my how I feel towards a Turk who has uh, asked for forgiveness, and many, many have. Many Turks have come to this nation and asked for for forgiveness for Armenia. Uh, again, you know, people do ask like, why Armenians are so fixed on uh, the genocide from 106 years ago, uh, and that denial really puts this thing in people that makes them feel it can happen again. Uh, and because Azerbaijan has already erased Armenian history and lands that they have taken, uh, where there have been historic Armenian communities, they just feel it can happen again. But uh, I can just say that while I would defend this nation, I'm, I mean, I'm, uh, though it requires grace and love, and which I believe can only come from God, I, I do believe you can do that without being driven by hatred. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I, uh, and I, I just think because Jesus is the ultimate example of this. I mean, here, this man, this savior, this God, he was abused and mocked and rejected and tortured. He hung on a cross, but he never stopped loving. And, you know, if, if you look or just Google the Armenian cross, you know, when Christianity came to this country, of course, the cross was a symbol of death. But if you look at Armenian crosses, there's no crucifixes. In fact, of the hundreds of thousands of crosses 
around this country etched in stone. There's never a crucifix because the cross has become a symbol of life and hope, not of death. And so I, I think Jesus is just the model. Nationalism, I mean, I, I, we can define these things. I, I, I mean, I am Armenian uh, and I, I love our, our unique history. I love this land. I, I love what, how God has worked uh, through and in Ar- Armenia. And uh, this, the land of Armenia today represents just a fraction of what was the kingdom of Armenia in the past. But, uh, but that nationalism doesn't dictate to me the say that we're somehow elevated uh, you know, uh, and that others are inferior. I think that we can be nationalism. uh, I think that if we are members of the kingdom of of God, if that's our identity, then I think we can have a healthy appreciation, love for our nation, even willing to defend and even die for our nation without being driven by hatred. Uh, I just believe we can do that. And, you know, I have had something inflicted on, you know, one of my daughters and, uh, and you know, this person who, who perpetrated this, he, I mean, I had to stand a foot from him and looking him in the eyes. And, but you just decide, I, I'm not going to hate. And we know who our real enemy is and we can't ever lose track of that. And so I just think that if we're driven by love, as it's become so cliche-ish to say, but if we're choosing to wage peace and rather than wage war, then uh, I think we can navigate through the, the landmines of of this issue. Uh, Craig, so you are evangelical, but when we were talking about Armenia and the, the Christian nationalism, it's focused on the Orthodox Church and the Orthodox faith. And... Is this is this a source of tension of you being a, also you're a minority in Armenia? So how does that work out for you? Right, that's uh, that's a reality. Uh, when you think of nationalism, here we have uh, eighty four million Turks on one side of us and eighteen million Azeri Turks on the other side. Um, they're attacking. There's been civil wars. There's been genocide. I mean, clearly that raises nationalism in a country where you say, you know, our very survival is at stake here. Uh, And in this context here, because the Armenian Apostolic Church has been our mother church, and I still would call it that. I would still say, like, it is our national monument. I think that Armenia exists today uh, in in large part because of the apostolic church. Uh, the church is what kept this country together in, in multiple uh, Persian invasions through history and through Ottoman invasions for the Bolshevik revolution. So there, there is a great honor on the apostolic church. Uh, and yet as nationalism increases, uh, a dislike for anything seen as being outside uh, is, is, easily attacked and evangelicalism is is one of those things so an evan- evangelicalism is seen as an attack against the the mother church or the national church of armenia uh i would say that in the past it was much worse where our, our evangelicals were just considered to be a cult uh at best a sect 
But over the last three or four years, that that mood has changed and there's been a little bit more bridge building. But as tensions really started to grow coming out of the 44-day war in 2020, we started hearing that the old rhetoric again, the attacks against evangelicals. Again, I want to say, like, I personally know several bishops who would disagree with that uh, assessment uh, and who who really do want to build bridges. Uh, but it's a big thing. And there are currently in Armenia only uh, about 80 to 100,000 evangelicals. And uh, I can't give you the number of those who are practicing apostolic believers, but uh, the truth is many people in Armenia uh, are not affiliated with any. And so my hope is that we can build bridges. There are some uh, attacks on evangelicals, at least verbally, that can be quite hurtful. Uh, Evangelicals who kind of came to be during the Soviet years can also feel that animosity towards the apostolic church because after the genocide, you know, a great bulk of our priesthood, they were the first to be killed. It was the intellectual class and the priest priestly class that were killed. And so when the Bolshevik revolution took place, it was very easy for uh, the Supreme Soviet uh, as the, as the years went on to establish essentially a, a priesthood uh, agnostic priesthood. And so many people who came into evangelicalism in Armenia did so through missionaries coming down through Russia. And and they would say that they came to faith, not because of the apostolic church, but in spite of. So there is animosity on both sides, and there needs to be a bridge between the two. Uh, but again, with this heightened nationalism, uh, even with what I'm doing, the idea of bridge building takes on a sinister uh, appearance to those who are on the apostolic side because they think there's an agenda to it. Uh, and there really isn't an agenda uh, other than uh, building a bridge and deepening relationship and finding commonality. Craig, thank you so much for sharing, for your, your powerful testimony um, of what it's like to be a Christian in Armenia right now. Um, what can Christians outside Armenia uh, do to help uh the situation? What can we pray for? And can we donate? Can we give to to certain agencies that are doing good work right now? Yeah, I think uh, probably what most people think right now in terms of how the world can respond to a situation like this would, would be reflective of how the world is responding to Ukraine and the massive refugee issue. Uh, Forced migration is a big thing in Armenia. We're still dealing with this uh, from the 2020 war. It was it was a massive thing, and it still is because we still have Azerbaijan and um, pushing Armenian commu- Armenians out of these Armenian communities in that disputed area of Nagorno Karabakh or Artsakh, as we would call it. And so we do have a, a huge issue of forced migration. Uh, and along with forced migration, along with the combat-related trauma, there's such a need to address the issue of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, we are doing that as the Peace and Reconciliation Network. Uh, our, our hope at this point is to try to uh, create lay ministry teams in churches around the country so that 
the evangelical churches can be on the front line of ministering uh, to uh, their soldiers in their communities who are suffering from PTSD. And that's no small thing because Armenia is a country that is not actually very warm to the idea of going to counseling or to a psychologist. And so community leaders can have more of an impact. So that's a big thing. And uh, we're working on that uh, right now. Of course, supporting relief efforts, uh, you know, having uh, so many uh, wounded and, and killed at, in this uh, attack. Just in that 24 hours, we have 207 young men that were killed, almost 300 that were wounded. We have 20 prisoners of war. We had civilians that were killed and wounded. And, and like I said, seven, almost 8,000 displaced people. And so certainly that requires help. I, again, it's a small country with an average monthly wage of $350. Uh, so the the financial need uh, is there. I mean, there may be people who uh, do art therapy as a, a means of addressing PTSD. Uh, those who who are counselors, and so there's there's tremendous need there. Of course, on uh, there's always that issue of writing to political leader, leaders, putting pressure on them to uh, to to stand with Armenia in terms of. Uh, honoring their national sovereign borders. Uh, and then the, the prayer thing, I, you mentioned that Ar Armenia being the first country in the world to embrace Christianity. I mean, that's not our history. That's just part of Christian history. It's, it doesn't belong to Armenians. It belongs to the church as a whole. I mean, the gospel came here in 40 AD, just after the resurrection. Uh, two of Jesus' disciples, Thaddeus and Bartholomew, really ignited something powerfully and, and then uh, in 301 AD, the king uh, gave his heart to Jesus and called the nation uh, to submit to him. And there was several hundred thousand baptisms in like two days. So it's a really rich history. I would say another thing, too, is to uh, it come to Armenia. I, I know having this conversation about war, it may be the last place that you might want to come to. But God willing, the ceasefire will hold. Come here. We have ancient monasteries with the oldest working cathedral in the world almost everywhere you go you you can go to ancient monasteries from the fifth century and sixth century and seventh century and the amazing thing about them they're all working churches and monasteries they have been having services every sunday for all these centuries so it's an amazing part uh of christian history but uh but in general i, I would say your your prayers uh uh, are just deeply appreciated and praying for the evangelicals as we navigate this climate where we can be seen as outsiders uh, when in reality, you know, we're here with the same heart uh, to, to be Jesus, uh, to reflect his love, his grace and mercy, uh, and to really be light in the darkness in the region. And so, uh, yeah, your prayers are really valuable to us. Amen. Thank you so much, Craig. Amen. Uh, we really pray for healing and for reconciliation. Also, for God to work in the hearts of Azerbaijanis and Turks. Also, so that we can bring about not just uh, you know the, the forgiveness that you're working on, but the full reconciliation and the and the healing that uh, again uh, brings us a glimpse into the kingdom of God that is yet to come. Um, thank you so much, Greg. I visited Armenia in 2017 during the European Baptist Federation's gathering that was in Armenia. And 
I remember we had good time. I really it was my first time in the country. We visited one of the um, castles or monasteries that's, that were close to the border back then. And I have really good memories. And yes, I invite people to visit this country um, and to, 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 to understand and to learn the history and the people. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, my Craig. pleasure. And thank you, Joel, also for joining me on this, uh, working with us on the Ditomi podcast episode. Thank you, listeners, also for listening in. We welcome, please, your feedback via email contact at ditomi.co. If you like this episode on your podcasting app, please put a five-star rating on Apple or Google Podcasts. It would help people learn about the podcast. Also, if, if you share it on your social media, you would also help us spread the word of how people like Craig and others all over the world were trying to be faithful to what God is calling us to do at the intersection of reconciliation, justice work, and the ministries of peacemaking. Until next time, have a great week, and I will, we will do our best to bring episodes more often than we've done in this year. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.